Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 14 tonight, begin a new chapter. If you would listen now to verses 1 through 7, we will hear the Lord's word. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by the, both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated? And once again, let's go to the Lord. Again, our Father in heaven, we come to you, um, having just prayed through that hymn, that you would dispel our sadness, and that, Lord, you might even do that through these means of grace tonight, that you would lift our hearts and our eyes to see you as your word, as your word is opened, as the Lord Jesus is held up. We pray, Father, that you would bless this servant and bless these, your people, those who have joined us in this building and those who may be joining from afar, we ask, O oh Lord, that your grace be extended to us. We help, Father, pray, Father, that you would help us to see in this passage how you have dealt with your saints in the past and the kinds of things you called them through in order that they might serve you faithfully. O oh Lord, would you grant to us to have twice that spirit that we too would follow in this path that is laid before us we thank you again for granting us, giving us the privilege of your word, the privilege of worship. And now we pray, O Lord, that you would meet with us and help us. And we ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin tonight in uh, Acts 14, Luke continues to present the history of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. So far, we've seen Paul and Barnabas, and I want to remind you of something very important as, as I think um, it, it comes out or it is, uh, needs to be reminded, we need to be reminded of, is that the Holy Spirit had set apart Saul and Barnabas for the ministry. He says in Acts 13, 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So as we've gone through Acts 13, we see Paul, Barnabas and Saul and John, their helper, and how they have traveled so far to Cyprus, then to Paphos, where they have a run-in with a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, and where the proconsul Sergius Paulus ends up believing. From Paphos, they went to Perga and Pamphylia. This is where John left them. And from Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch. The bulk of the, the rest, or the remainder of chapter 13, verses 14 through 52, focuses upon their time in Pisidian Antioch. Their custom was to find a synagogue on the Sabbath day, that is on Saturdays, our Saturdays, and to tell the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles what the law and the prophets all foretold. 
that their Messiah, Jesus Christ, has come. This is their custom, and you can see it time and again in, in all of their missionary journeys. And so Paul would say in Acts 13, 38 through 40, that through him, that is through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. The response that we see and saw in Acts uh, 13 is both one of belief and one of blasphemy. Of, uh, it's a response of wonder on the part of some and wretchedness on the part of others. A wretchedness so much so that the apostles and the brethren, made up of Jews and Gentiles, suffer persecution uh, indirectly from the hands of the Jews. They, Paul and Barnabas, are driven out of the district, and yet we see them that they shook off the dust of their feet in the protest, in protest against them, a statement that they will no longer bring the blessing of the light of the gospel to the Jews in that district again, and they leave for Iconium. As we now come to chapter 14, in these first seven verses, we very much see the same thing that occurs in chapter 13, though in a very much abbreviated fashion. One might ask the question, why? Why is Luke recording this? And if you remember, the, this is written in order to be an encouragement. Some have said it's a, a record of the working of the Holy Spirit in the church. The Lord has said, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all of Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here we see the gospel is moving forward. Why, why record something like this? I mean, it, it seems a little redundant, don't you think? Chapter 13, we have this wonderful gospel message is given, and then chapter 13, we see this wonderful and wretched response to the gospel. We see persecution, and then we see them move on. Maybe it's given so that the saints in our day might see the same lessons that they, we see in them, and that the struggles that they faced, we could identify with and say, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do when I'm rebuffed, when I'm rejected, when I give the gospel. Maybe, maybe so necessary to us in our American culture where we'd like to say, fine, you don't want me, I'm leaving. And we leave. And what does this say for the church? And what does it say of the gospel? And what does it say of our utopian mindsets that I expect to serve the Lord without any problems in my life? What does that tell us? This isn't the way the saints did it. This isn't the way Paul and Barnabas did it. This isn't the way the early church did it. They go to Iconium. And again, as we see this, um, as we see this, they find the synagogue, they preach the word, have yet again a wonderful reaction to the word, as well as a wretched response towards the messengers and their message. A couple of things that I want to bring up just as we uh, enter into this. Um, a couple of observations. You might be thinking, well, and if I were reading this for the first time and you read through Acts 13, uh, it's our general observation. We go, well, they certainly must have done something wrong. Nobody likes to act like that towards gospel ministers. I certainly came out of seminary going into church saying, 
What's not to love? Not speaking of myself, but, but, but thinking of the doctrines and thinking these doctrines are wonderful. Who's not going to like these things? Everyone loves Martin Luther. Everyone loves John Calvin. Nobody's going to have a problem with this. And you get into the church and lo and behold, you're like, am I even in a Protestant church? What's the problem with these people? And you find out that there's all sorts of problems in the Lord's church. All sorts of wolves and, and terrors and, and people who are going to oppose you. And the attrition rate in ministry is astronomical. <clears throat> Guys leaving the ministry. And maybe it's because we didn't have a class on Acts. I don't know. <laughs> we should have, should have had a class on Acts. And maybe that's something if you're ever in a seminary or you go to seminary, maybe we can make that a recommendation. Have a class, an in-depth study on the book of Acts. So a couple of things. Maybe, maybe you think Paul and Barnabas had such adverse reactions in Pisidia because the people in that region were just naturally a more surly people. Maybe they're like New Yorkers where they're just always grumpy. And so they've always got a problem, always something to pick at. So we'll have them go to this new place, Iconium. Oh, the people there are much nicer. It's not like Pisidian Antioch. And then you find out they go to Pisidian Antioch, or they go to Iconium, and what do we find out? They have the same reactions there. So maybe it isn't just a group, a small group of people who have problems like this. But maybe you think, well, Paul and Barnabas, they just didn't use enough tact and Pisidian Antioch. Maybe if they changed their words, readjusted their message, maybe if they didn't speak so offensively of the Jews, maybe then they would be received better off. And yet, what do we see here? That they spoke in such a manner in Iconium that a large number of people believed. And then what happens in Iconium? The same thing that happened in Pisidia. I believe this dispels the myth that if you say the right things in the right manner to the right audience, you can avoid getting people upset. <laughs> Don't bet on it. Don't bet on it. You see, what's interesting is, is that everything that has occurred in Acts 13 is now occurring again, and, and it's going to be interesting as we get into this, because at one point, the folks in chapter 14 want to worship Paul and Barnabas, and then they find out, you're no gods, let's kill you. And it's just this flip-flop, this terrible reaction. These poor men, these faithful men, what we see is that what transpires in Acts 13 transpires in Acts 14, and what happens in one place happens in another, and we really can't say it's a problem with the men or the messengers, but the problem is the hearts of, of people and how they respond to the things of the Lord. And this, friends, is a universal, timeless truth is that the word of God being preached is not going to be received by any number of people in, in, in our circles. And so the discouragement comes that, oh, I just, maybe I just ought to just step down. Maybe I ought to just quit. But remember this. Um, we, we are oftentimes disappointed. We are surprised when we meet with the same responses over and over. And again, we are prone to believe, and perhaps you must necessarily be doing something wrong. Have you ever spoken to somebody about the Lord, and they just got their hackles up with you? And you say, what did I say? <laughs> what did I do? And it's not necessarily anything you've done wrong, 
but it might very well be something you've done right. Now, I'm not count, discounting the fact that we can say things in an uncharitable manner and we can do things in a bad manner and we should be circumspect, but don't necessarily believe that because you've shared the gospel and somebody got upset that you've done something wrong. We learned this. Remember Jesus said this, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Again, the temptation to us is to quit when things don't go well for us. But here we are told of what Paul and Barnabas did and didn't do, giving to us encouragement and by their example recorded for us, giving instruction to us as to what we must do and what our attitude should be in the face of opposition. This is given to encourage the church that meets with opposition, give them encouragement so that they don't quit. We mustn't quit giving the gospel. So what are we to do when we face opposition for the sake of the gospel? Again, in verses 1 and 2, we are faced with the wonderful and wretched response to the gospel. Let me read these. I'll read verses 1 through 3 again. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them again against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Being driven out of the district of Pisidian Antioch, they have made their way now to the city of Iconium. Iconium was an important crossroads and agricultural center in the central plain of the province of Galatia, southern Galatia, some 80 miles southeast from Pisidian Antioch in what is now known as modern-day Turkey. I want you to notice where they go after they're driven out of Pisidia, uh, Pisidian Antioch and what they do. We are told again, they enter the synagogue of the Jews together. Now, wait a second. They just got kicked out. Are these men thick? What is their problem? Why do they keep going? Can't they take a hint? Shouldn't they just desist? Maybe they should find another job. Maybe Paul should take up tent making, for crying out loud. Wouldn't life be a whole lot easier? Why don't these men quit? They don't quit. They don't quit. Just as previously in Salamis in 13.5 and then in Pisidia, they go to where Jews and God-fearing Gentiles go to hear the law and the prophets read and to hear the word taught. They've come to be able in order to tell those who have been anticipating the coming of the Messiah that the Messiah has indeed come. His name is Jesus Christ and now is the time to believe in Jesus Christ. They proclaim the word of God presumably very similar to what has taken place in Acts 13. Again, the law and the prophets are read. So they go to this new synagogue. The synagogues would have very similar styles, similar things that they would be doing. The law and the prophets are read, and then somebody invites them, would you like to come up and speak? And Paul's, of 
Of course, I'd like to come and speak. And based on the words that were read, he comes and he brings the gospel again to bear as we looked at in Acts 13, pointing out that salvation is of the Lord and it cannot be accomplished by the work of your hands. Again, he's speaking to Jews and he's speaking to God-fearing Gentiles. Gentiles who fear the Lord are strangely attracted and like the things of the Old Testament, but they are not convinced or they are not uh, converted to Judaism. They haven't been uh, um, um, circumcised. They haven't gone the full way, but they are God-fearing men and women. They come and they listen. He brings from the Old Testament that which points to Christ and urges his hearers to believe upon Christ or else the things spoken of by the prophets will come upon them. And Luke describes this. He says, they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed both of Jews and Greeks. So they have this wonderful response, yet again, to the Gospels that is preached. But I'm struck by these words where he says, where he says, um, they spoke in such a manner, verse 1, that a large number of people believed both of Jews and Greeks. What was going on? Why does, why does Luke say this? concerning Paul and Barnabas. Did they visit a Toastmasters gathering on the way to Iconium? Maybe they've improved their ability to speak. They've become more eloquent. They present better arguments. One translation says they spoke so effectively, leading one to think that the kingdom of God and its advance is dependent upon the elocution of the man in the pulpit. And so it is, and I think this is an important point, in fact, I think this is an important point through this whole thing. Oftentimes, we place too much importance upon our abilities. We place way too much importance of, a weight upon our performance. And, and my concern with the one translation saying that they spoke so effectively is that it, it almost sounds as if Paul and Barnabas upped their game in between one city and the next. I don't think that for a second, that that is what has occurred. Again, they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believe both of Jews and Greeks. And so if we place our confidence in our abilities, if we are not careful, our confidence becomes our flesh and our ability to win people. Now look, there are some very convincing people there are ways that in the church we can, we can emotionally manipulate and get people to do things. If I have Joyce over here playing just as I am three, uh, 300 times in a row when I say, now friends, don't you care about the things of the Lord? Don't you care? And, and look at this, look at this. And, and we can manipulate people with soft synthesizers. We can do all of these things and we could get people to behave and we could make the church look dynamic and like something was going on. Is this what Paul and Barnabas are doing? They've decided to speak so effectively now that they've convinced a whole bunch of people. I don't think so at all. I think that that kind of thing can become a, a, a horses and chariots for us, things in which we place our confidence. Also, it can become a great source of discouragement, so much so that we may not speak of Christ for fear that I can't do it properly or well enough and I am um, beyond being helpful 
or useful to the Lord. Both of those are just terrible ideas. By the way, the Apostle Paul, he says, I came to you and I was not impressive in speech or in appearance. He says that very thing, that he was not that way. He, he will say about uh, Apollos, that Apollos was an eloquent man. I, I believe it's Acts. Luke says this of Apollos. He was very eloquent when he spoke. And some men spoke long. Some are eloquent. Paul, when he speaks, he's flailing his arms. He's raising his arms up. And I find it's just beautiful. I went to a pastor's conference once, once where they had men like Alistair Begg and Walter Kaiser, and they had Michael Horton, uh, and they had a, a host of different men who spoke of these things. And they were all absolutely fantastic in the messages they brought. And what astounded me as a young minister as I went to this thing is that I watch each of these men, and you see how absolutely different each man was. One had a tremendous sense of humor. One was intense, tightly wound. Another is, is very calm and, and, and cordial as he speaks. They were all fantastic, and they were all very different. And so which one does the Lord use? Paul says, he who works effectually in Peter works also effectually in me. And that there's no judgment in the scriptures given to someone preaching long, preaching short, preaching eloquently, preaching unimpressively. There's no value judgment placed upon it that was, that's too bad, or that was really cool. Or We don't do those things. Why? Because the effectiveness comes from the Lord. That's who makes the word effective. And so it's a very worldly thing when we say, well, you're not like so-and-so, or you're not like so-and-so. Yes, and they're not like me. What's your point? You see what happens here when he says, they, and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believe, both of Jews and Greeks. Friends, don't compare yourself to other people, please. Don't. You are exactly what you're supposed to be, Use and be what the Lord has given you and do it for his glory. Without placing confidence in your flesh and without saying you're beyond the Lord's reach of, of help. Need I remind you of Charles Spurgeon's conversion under a Methodist minister who, as I recall, I read that it was not a very impressive sermon. And yet that man, that poor janitor, I think it was, who preached that word, um, was used of the Lord to raise up who later would become known as the Prince of Preachers. The Lord has a wonderful sense of humor, doesn't he? He used fishermen and tax collectors to educate philosophers. Don't underestimate what the Lord will do through you and how he can use you just as you are. You see, when we take that attitude, we end up being quiet, and we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. So we look at this. Um, the text does not say that they spoke in such a manner as if from some personal treasure coming deep from within themselves, but credit is to be given where credit is due. The messenger carries the word renders his best efforts to the Lord, but dare not place his confidence in his efforts, but in God, who blesses our weak efforts for his glory. I think sometimes we get the impression that these men just 
with all bravado come marching in and, and get it done. I'm starting to think maybe it's not quite what I had always thought. J.A. Alexander said this, that these words spoke in such a manner is commonly explained to mean in so remarkable a manner with such force, warmth, unction, or assistance of the Spirit. It is the Lord that blessed, especially so, the preaching of his servants, this being then not a statement about Paul and Barnabas, but rather about the Lord who works where and when and to whatever degree serves his purpose in redemption. That's wonderful comfort for a minister. I heard R.C. Sproul say once that he had preached a sermon, and I like to say to my brother, Jason, who is also a pastor, We'll call and I'll say, how did it go Sunday? Or he'll ask me. And in our common lingo is, I felt like I was throwing a cinder block. <laughs> if you've ever picked up a cinder block and you try to heave it, that's what it feels like sometimes delivering the, <laughs> and it falls right down in front of you. And other times you feel like you've thrown a fastball, you know, fingers on the stitching and it's just, you can hear it sizzle as it cuts the air. Um, most of the time I feel like I'm throwing cinder blocks. Sproul said this too. He said, boy, I felt like I just had preached the worst sermon in my life. And he went to the back of the sanctuary and he stood and was like, oh, this is agonizing to have to have people walk past me. And one after another came and said, wow, what a God, what a blessing. You just can't tell what the Lord is going to do. You can't judge providence, God's work, by feeble sense, says the, the, the hymn. And so we have this wonderful image here, of this statement that they spoke in such a manner, and I believe with all my heart that this is not about Paul and Barnabas and some giftedness on their part, but this is about the Lord's presence and power in the midst of hardship. So powerful was the Lord through the word preached that we are told that a large number of people believed both of Jews and Greeks, implying that it was quite significant. Driven from Pisidia, they do not quit. They do not, or rather, they go to the next town and they do it all over again. And once again, the Lord blesses the proclamation of his word. Have you been shut down? Have you been silenced? Do you say to yourself, what's the point? There's no point in trying again. Every time I try this, I am met with opposition. It must certainly be me. No, it must not certainly be you. You must continue. And the early church would no doubt meet with the same opposition wherever they're trying to plant churches. I, was, I saw an advertisement on Facebook today a uh, brother in the PCA, I think he's in the PCA, asking if anyone was interested in church planting, and it set my mind down a path, going, oh, someone should tell these men what they're getting ready to sign up for when they go to plant a church, because every church I've ever been a part of, there's always opposition. Always opposition. Do you know, I'm starting to think that's the norm. Or it's just me, but I don't think it's just me. I think it's opposition all the time that that's that's what the lord promises us that's what the lord promises us so we mustn't get discouraged um, i know we do get discouraged and the temptation is 
that we want to quit, and we shouldn't. We shouldn't, because the Lord is still the Lord, and his kingdom is still his kingdom, and a day is coming when he will take us home, and he will reward those who don't grow weary and quit. So we have this wonderful response to the gospel being preached, and then again, we see yet another wretched response. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Here we are in a new place, a different group of people in a different city, the Jews, of course, with the same background, but who heard and yet who would yet disbelieve, who would refuse or withhold belief, who were disobedient or unaccepting of the word that was preached. Friends, we can't be, we can't be indifferent to the gospel message. And this is what is so interesting here. You'll see a footnote likely in your Bible. This word disbelieved might also be translated, they disobeyed. Paul had given in a commandment um, in, in Acts 13. He says, therefore take heed, verse 40, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. And what did the people do? Some believed, and many didn't. And so they disbelieved. And here these people, they disobey. Why? Again, it may be simply because they were jealous over the success of Paul and Barnabas. Luke does not say. Perhaps they were offended that Paul and Barnabas had said that obeying Moses wouldn't deliver them from the wrath to come. Remember this, that the gospel is an affront to the natural man. The gospel is an affront to the natural man. The natural man, the man without the spirit of God, the man left to the inclinations in, uh, of his heart will be offended, will be offended by the gospel. Because in the church, we are telling people not to make themselves better. We're telling them to look to Christ. And that no amount of effort on your part will make you fit for heaven. The answer is Christ. You must turn from your confidence in yourself and from your sin and look to God in Christ the Savior. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this. Verses 20 through 25. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block in the Gentiles' foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It is a message that the Jews just did not like, and so they disbelieved it. And what was the result of those who disbelieved? Again, we are told they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Again, we see this wretched response to the beautiful message of the gospel of persecution, harassment, and hostility. They disbelieve, but as we said uh, a few weeks back, they always maintained this appearance of righteousness, and they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, that is, 
and they embittered them against not just Paul and Barnabas, but against the brethren, these new Christians from among the Jews and Gentiles. That is, they got the Gentiles all worked up, excited against the believers. They got the Gentiles to think ill of the Christians. How, again, we're not told, and yet we can assume that they are names, character attacks, false accusations, things perhaps like they are haters. See, they don't condone the things that are broadly accepted. You're haters. We hear things like this today about the church, don't we? They're seditious. They don't honor Caesar, but Christ, they're not good citizens. If you want to be a good citizen, you've got to go along with everyone else. And yet, they're ignorant. They're without knowledge, because who are the best citizens? Those who fear God and keep the law, right? That makes for a good neighbor. That makes for a good neighbor. Or perhaps it's just this old lie. They just think they're better than everyone else. Whatever it was, they painted, the Jews painted the believers in such a bad light that they stirred up the Gentiles. And so the harassment, once again, has begun. And what do they do as a result? This may surprise you. Verse 3. Therefore, therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. One might have ex expected to read that they went away, that they quit, that they felt sorry for themselves and made a hasty exit. But no, we hear just the opposite here. Um, Though once again facing opposition from the Jews via the Gentiles, Luke reports that they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. Their time was not cut short as a result of the harassment they underwent, but they spent a long time there. And Luke writes that they spoke or were speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. There is some question as to the translation of this verse. The NIV says, speaking boldly for the Lord. The ESV, both of these good translations, speaking boldly for the Lord. But the NAS, the version I'm reading from, says, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. Which is it? One reads as though they are speaking boldly in reliance upon the strength that God provides. The other, that they spoke boldly for the Lord. I prefer the translation I'm reading, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. And the reason I say this is this. Um, it uses in the Greek a preposition, epi, which uh, here in this application is that upon which, as a foundation, any superstructure is reared. That preposition is used to say that there's something here that they're building upon. And so the NAS translates it that they're speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. It's a bit of a translation from the, the um, authors of the NAS. But I say this, um, and I like this translation, based on the fact that in verse 2 we've just read that they are undergoing persecution. We've just read, again, of the harassment that has been put upon them. And I find it very likely that they labored in hardship in reliance upon the Lord he undergirding them despite opposition from the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 1.8, we don't think these things, 
typically. And I don't know why, if I ever am asked to teach at a seminary, I might try to teach Acts. At least I will teach a class on suffering. <laughs> my, my old friend. Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. Listen to this. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. That sure does, doesn't sound like the victorious Christian life to me. I just got beat five times with 39 lashes. I was left out in the cold, naked, exposed. I've been hungry for days. Gee, this is great. And this is the way we sometimes think that people, that the saints, that Paul and Barnabas and the apostles, most of whom... Um, died martyrs' deaths according to tradition, and we say, well, 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 they should be happy and victorious and chipper. The reality is, these men are in hardship. From day one, the Lord has called them to service, and this is what they're going through. We might think that they were somehow less human than the rest, but I can assure you they are completely human. And knowing that they are completely human and that they continue to serve the Lord in weakness where the Lord is blessing the word going forward is there for us to be encouraged by because we are no less human and we feel it no less than they would have too. See, if we put them in the super saint category, we say, well, that was them. But that's not me. But actually, I would argue that they are just like you and me. And that's what makes the scripture so encouraging to us. Because we are no different. And because we're no different and the Lord is no different, we can expect that just as they face trial and persecution, so when we face hardships and our endeavors to reach the world with the gospel, the Lord will no, no, no less abandon us than he abandoned them. He will not abandon us as he did not abandon them. They were greatly opposed. They experienced difficult opposition. They persevered in the face of hardships by relying upon the Lord uh, we should not think that it was easy. And it is important to remember that they belong to the Lord, just as you belong to the Lord. They were called by the Lord. Again, in Acts 13.2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. As they're going through this, they can be reminded. Barnabas, we've got to remember, the Holy Spirit said, Set us apart. They, he's, he has set us apart for this. He will give us what we need when we need it. And of Paul... Who can forget what is said in Acts 9, 15 through 16? Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. All of these things in the back of his mind as they once again in another city met with disappointment, met with opposition, they can rely upon the Lord and say, the Lord has loves us, he saved us, he's redeemed us, he set us apart for this, even before my mother's, while in my mother's womb, I was set apart for these things. And then he holds fast, and he brings the word, because he's a faithful and chosen servant of a faithful God. 
who does what he does. Paul will later say to the saints, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. My friends, the Lord will give what is needed to us, his people, at just the right time. And so we wait upon the Lord and we continue to serve the Lord. And finally, uh, the Lord also supported them by verifying the word preached with signs and wonders. Again, in verse 3, we read, Who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands? As the men were preaching the word, God himself was testifying, was bearing witness or confirming the truthfulness of the word of his grace, that is the gospel, by performing signs and wonders and miracles through them. We don't know what the miracles were, but we do know that they strengthened the faith of the brethren that were used and were used to confirm the truth of the word as with Sergius Paulus. We read this in Acts 13, 12. Remember when Paul strikes Elimus and he, he's blind and we're told, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord and that the miracles that were done gave confirmation to the power, the truthfulness of the word and the, the validity of the men who brought the message that it was true. And so we see that the Lord is greatly at work in the face of hardship. And these men, they don't stop because the Lord himself is faithful. My friends, how difficult to labor when it would seem so many are against you. But we don't quit and we persevere, not quitting, because of him who is with us through it all. And this is his promise, and this is the example we're given here in Scripture. And this is why I think that we're going to see this theme again and again coming up through Acts, the persecution and the hardship, because it's meant to instruct and encourage us that this, too, is the very path that we are all upon. And, and when you consider the days in which we're living and how we are fading as a country, we are no longer have that consciousness that there is the Almighty we have suppressed the truth with unrighteousness that we have marched and gone back into the days of the New Testament. We can fully expect that this will become more and more the norm for the people of God. And that being the case, don't quit. <laughs> Stay the course and keep holding up Jesus Christ. The Lord himself will help us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for your encouragement to us. We pray that you would help us in the struggles that we face, that we would not grow weary. We pray, Lord, for open doors, and we pray, Lord, for your blessing as we prayed before the service that you would give to us your unction, your spirit, your anointing, and that you would give to us, Father, those things we need to say at just the right time to say them. We pray that you will advance your kingdom and strengthen your church. We humbly ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>